It's Daily Thunder, the special holiday edition. The Ellerslie campus is closed through Christmas break, but Daily Thunders are still booming forth daily through this podcast. For those of you that like to enjoy Daily Thunder live and in person on the Ellerslie campus, mark your calendars for our relaunch on Monday, January 13th. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. This episode is part of a special series entitled The 12 Days of Christmas and is delivered by Nathan Johnson. Uh, well, this morning I want to do a comparison. I'm actually really excited. I've been pondering this for, for days. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. Uh, I want to do a comparison of kings. As we come to the Christmas season, it's interesting. We often talk about the fact that Jesus is born and he is the king of kings and lord of lords, which is absolutely true. But as you get into the Gospels, there's a whole other king that sets up a contrast that we typically forget. And uh, I want to talk about Herod the Great. Some of you have heard me talk through this, but I just, Herod the Great to me is, he is so profound. He was absolutely brilliant and inexpressibly evil. I mean, he was like on a Hitler level of evil, and yet he was like Einstein level of brilliance. Probably bad comparisons on both sides, but, but Herod just had, Herod was gifted in some amazing ways. He was a brilliant engineer. He, he was a brilliant strategist. He, he was a brilliant economist. He, he understood the markets, and he played the games incredibly well. But it's interesting, when you look at the life of Herod the Great, and you contrast it with the life of Jesus, that there's some dramatic differences between their two king, their kingships, king, kingdoms, their, their rules, their reigns. Uh, so I just want to give you some quick background. Again, some of you already heard this, but uh, Herod the Great was born in 73 BC, and he was raised as a Jew, even though he didn't come from a family of Jews. So in other words, he wasn't a Jew by lineage, he was a Jew by force. And during the whole Maccabean revolt stuff, uh, the Maccabees came in um, to where where Herod's family was from, which was kind of on the Jordan side uh, in Edom, and basically kind of forced by the sword these people to convert to Judaism. And so Herod, though he wasn't born a Jew, called himself a Jew. That makes sense. And obviously, as you start following this thing through, you kind of see that tension um, even in in the passage. Uh, But he rose to power during his father's uh, relationship, or because of his father's relationship to Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar appointed Herod governor of Galilee in about 47 BC. So he'd been about 25, 28 years old at that time. And so here he is ruling uh, Galilee itself. After Julius Caesar died, Herod in his brilliance realized if he has a position because of his friendship with Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar dies, he's in trouble. Right? Because in Rome, whoever takes the throne, if you befriended the previous rulership, we need to get rid of all those people so you'll be loyal to me. So Herod goes over and befriends Mark Anthony and just says, hey, uh, Mark Anthony, I know I was really close buddies with Julius Caesar, but hey, I'm willing to lay that aside and we'll become best buds and I will support you and I will help you and I have the, I have the best place. But here's the deal. I don't want to just be in charge of Galilee. I want to be in charge of the whole thing. And Mark Anthony, through a whole a bunch of processes here, uh, in, uh, appointed Herod as the governor of the entire uh, country of Israel. Of this, of this region. <clears throat> now, during this season, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, he had several incredible engineering feats. And again, if you ever get to go to Israel, 
a lot of the places you end up going to is like, oh, that was built by Herod. Oh, that was built by Herod. Yep, that's a Herod thing. Yep, that's a Herod thing. But it's amazing to me that he was, he really was brilliant. And uh, again, one of the things he did is he, he went out into this harbor. He wanted to have a deep water port in Israel so that he could have a lot of these big boats because he'd make, he'd make millions. And so he, in his brilliant engineering, did something what engineers today say is impossible, and he built this incredible deep water harbor in Caesarea. Uh, he he uh, redid the whole Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, he took the fortress of Masada and made it this epic fortress where he built a three-tiered palace down the cliffside. Uh, he, he, he moved a mountain so that he could be buried right where his mother's chariot flipped over. And he just said, well, I want to be buried here, but I don't want to just be buried in a tomb. I want to have a mountain. And so he had all these people come over and move a mountain and so, that, so that he could be buried on a mountain so that everyone in Jerusalem could see his mountain. I mean, the man was insane, but brilliant, brilliantly insane. But he was insane. Uh, he was evil. Uh, because of just his, his position, uh, he always felt like someone was, was going to go get him, and so he was always worried about threats, and any time there was even a whisper of threats, he would just kill it off. And so, you know, he would, he would kill, you know, his wives or his sons or, you know, the, his, his uh, governors or, or who, whoever it would be. He just, it didn't matter who they were. If there was any threat to his kingship, you would die. <clears throat> uh, in fact, I, I love what uh, Caesar Augustus said. He, uh, Caesar Augustus was a close friend of Herod. And the statement was from Caesar Augustus, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And the reason Augustus said that is because of the fact that in, obviously, Jewish culture, if you had pigs, which you typically didn't, but if you did have a pig, you're not going to eat it because it's unclean. So the pigs were safe. But if you were Herod's son, there was a threat because he saw you as a potential problem because you're going to want his throne. I mean, he was twisted. Now, if you understand the background of Herod the Great, it actually puts the birth of Christ in a, a far better perspective. If you recognize that most of the Israelites were just, were under this tyranny of Herod the Great. And they would quote-unquote love Herod the Great because if we don't tell him we love him, he's going to kill us, but we hate him. In fact, on Herod's deathbed, his command was to literally go across the nation and kill all these thousands of people so that at least there would be mourning on the day of his death because he was concerned that no one would mourn him when he died. So if you take that concept and <clears throat> come into Matthew chapter 2, it's fascinating to look at this progression with the wise men. Again, most scholars tell us that after the birth of Christ, likely the wise men did not show up probably for a year and a half or two years after the birth of Christ. So again, our, our Christmas cantatas and our, all of our Christmas decorations, you know, we, we typically have the wise men there with the shepherds and Joseph and Mary all in the little stable. That, that wasn't likely how it happened. The shepherds showed up on the day of the birth. Whoo, praise the Lord. And then Joseph and Mary said, well, we probably need to, you know, stick around here for a season. And so they probably rented a house, and they started working, and Joseph was doing, you know, the carpenter stuff. And, and likely they were there for a couple of years, and the wise men show up in this time period. So they're likely in a house, right? And these wise men who have come from the east uh, have been traveling, you know, probably well over 1,000 miles, following this star, they get there, and isn't it interesting, they show up in Jerusalem. Now, and I've asked this question before, but, but how many wise men were there? We don't know, right? We know that there was at least three of them because three of them brought gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
which is beautiful because those are three of the things that define that which was in the temple. I think it's actually really beautiful. And it's really neat that they gave the gifts because this is actually what allowed Joseph and Mary to run down to Egypt. This is, this is what financed their uh, Egypt trip. But when you look at this, the Wiseman thing, it wouldn't just have been three people. That makes no logical sense. If you're going to travel a thousand miles, obviously they're fairly wealthy, right? They would have an entourage. They would have servants. They would probably have soldiers. And, uh, and if you're coming and you're going to come that far, it's dangerous. So you, you, you would have a big group. So there's probably 50, 100, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's going to be dozens of people. And you realize they come into Jerusalem. And all of Jerusalem is buzzing about it. Why? Because these foreigners have now entered into Jerusalem, and it's a big group. And so Herod calls them up and says, hey, uh, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, hey, uh, we're looking for the king. Now, listen to their statement. I think this is, this is hilarious. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And a lot of scholars have played into that and just saying, isn't it interesting that here is Herod, who's actually not born of the Jews. He was a Jew by title. You know, he took the title Jew, but he really wasn't a Jew. And Herod, this wise men saying, hey, where's the real king? Now, Herod's already paranoid. His whole life has been one of paranoia. So if you can imagine the tension that Herod has when these wise men from afar go, hey, we're looking for the real king of the Jews, because you're obviously not him. And Herod goes, oh, uh, please, tell me more. Uh, who is he? And they're like, well, I don't know. Uh, but he's, we followed the star. How long have you been following the star? About two years, right? And he, he checks with his advisors, and they find out, that, oh, this king is going to be born in Bethlehem, right? And so Herod, in chap, uh, verse 16, goes in, realizes he's been tricked by the wise men, and goes and just kills all the baby boys two years old and under in Bethlehem at the time. And right before this, Joseph gets the word, uh, the angel shows up, and God tells him to leave and goes, go down to Egypt. So Jesus is saved. It's interesting that here is this king who's full of paranoia trying to kill a king who is the king. So with that as kind of a, a background, as you look at these two kings, it's really fascinating to me that there's some interesting parallels or contrasts is probably a better word. That when you start looking at the king, King Herod, and King Jesus, they're both kings, but they're completely different. So I just want to give you five quick comparisons of these kings, just to be pondering in the season. Uh, number one is the idea of posture. Herod's posture is that of pride. He's all wrapped up in himself. It's all about his grandeur and his glory and his prestige and his whatever. Uh, why, why is he making all these phenomenal architecture stuff? Oh, so that people go, whoa, King Herod. Right? So I can make money. So I can, it's all about pride. His posture is that of pride. Jesus, what was Jesus' posture? He's born in a stable. Talk about the humblest place. We're talking the king of the universe who has a right to choose his birthplace. I mean, it should be a palace, shouldn't it? And yet the king of the universe <clears throat> doesn't choose a palace. He chooses a stable with animals and hay, and animal stuff all over the place. You've been in a stable, I'm sure, right? You realize it's deep humility. Another idea is this idea of position. Well, what was Herod's position? 
He is the king over a little piece of land. What's Jesus' position? He's king of the universe. And it's interesting, when you look at the position in light of the posture, here is Herod, king over just this little tiny strip of land. And he is arrogant, prideful, just... And yet here is the king of the universe! Not just of a country, not just even of a continent, not even of the world itself, not even of our solar system, not even of our galaxy. He is the king over all. And yet his posture is that of humility. Uh, the third one is this idea of passion. You realize Herod's passion is all about himself. Herod's passion is all about control, manipulation. Hey, what do I get? How am I going to get it? All that kind of stuff. He's obsessed with one thing, himself. Jesus has a passion. What's Jesus' passion? You. Isn't it interesting that the one who should be wrapped up in himself has given himself. He's turned outward. He's living in humility, in love. And his passion is not for himself. His passion is for others. That's beautiful. <clears throat> A fourth one is this idea of purpose. You realize that when you look at Herod's life, Herod's whole life, his whole purpose was guard and protect. Hey, what can I build? What can I guard? How can I protect it? This is my kingdom. And his whole purpose is, hey, I, I need to build this empire and I need to guard and protect as best as possible. I'm going to kill everybody in my way. What was Jesus' purpose? He says, I've come that I might give my life a ransom to many. I've come to die. I've come to actually give my life for those in my kingdom. I didn't come to take. I've come to give. Hey, I've come to be the ransom. I've come to pay the price. I've, I've come to demonstrate love. I've come to seek and save that which was lost. That's completely opposite of Herod's purpose and passion. And lastly, there's this idea of the pinnacle. Isn't it interesting in the end, Herod died. And by the way, do you know where pride and selfishness and self-focus and guard and protect lead you? Death. It, it can only go to one place. It leads to death. Jesus pours his life out, lives in humility, all about love. What's the pinnacle of Jesus? Life. That this king is not dead. This king is alive. And not just alive, but he is returning. And he is to be glorified and praised. It's an interesting contrast to me. And I think we often forget that as we enter into the season that we're in, because we're looking at, oh, this little baby born in a manger. But in the Gospels, it's presuming you, you understand Herod. And when you understand Herod, what Jesus does is has this phenomenal contrast to the great Herod, because his name is Herod the Great. And he was all about himself. And Jesus, who is the greatest, he is the superlative of all superlatives, was born as a baby. He should have come in riding a white stallion, but instead he took the lowly position of a baby who could not fend for itself, who was born in a stable. And you realize that is a picture of our life, that he's going to be born in a stable known as us, but he wants to turn you into the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's willing to be born in a stable, but he's not willing to leave you a stable. 
And I love, I love this contrast between Herod and Jesus. And in this season, let us not forget it's about humility. In this season, let us not forget it's about love. In this season, it's all about his life. And let us praise and honor him, for he is, for it is rightly due his name. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. And Lord, it's interesting to me that you were born in a day when one of the most brilliant but most evil men was ruling. But that sets up a beautiful contrast to your life. And it's a beautiful reality of how my life's supposed to be lived. Because in this little rulership that I have known as my body, it's not to be about me. And it's not supposed to be about my pride. And it's not about me guarding and protecting and living for myself. Lord, I, I am to be marked by love and life and humility. And so, Lord, just as you came as a little babe in a manger in humility, would you remind me in this season that my life is to be marked by that? That the one who deserved to come with all the pomp and with all the celebration, all the significance, chose to come lowly. And Lord, may we just behold and be amazed in the season afresh the wonder of who you are. We love you. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.